Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to the rest of y'all. Glad you're here. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in because today is one of those days where, I shouldn't say that because I feel it every Sunday, to preach the Word of God is weightier than you can understand if you've never done it. Because here's the reality. Every time that y'all sit in this room or every time somebody gets online, that they are, they are taking the words that are spoken from this platform and it is forming how they perceive God. And I don't know if you know this, but what you believe about God affects what you believe about everything else. Talk to me, church. Come on. What you, and even if you say, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God, that lack of belief in God is shaping what you believe about everything else. So what you believe about God shapes everything that you believe about everything else. And then I have the, the privilege of sitting up here and speaking to you in a way that's shaping what you think about God. And Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are some chapters in this letter that Paul wrote to Rome that most preachers more often than not avoid. And I don't even know if y'all know this. And that's my, my thing today is like, I don't even know if I should tell you some of the things that are sparked, that are birthed out of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And all of us want to finish chapter 8 and God works all things for the good of those who love him and we are more than conquerors and go straight to chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and let's just keep on moving on. But I can't do that. Why? Because these chapters are still in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, I, I have the responsibility to preach it. And, and the problem is that from... The onset of Christianity, humanity has tried to take the word of God and we've taken verses that are laced in these chapters and we've latched on to certain verses, leaving the beauty of the, what they say cumulatively behind. Did that make sense? That there's times that we latch on to certain verses or certain words in scripture and we latch on to them in such a way we leave behind the realities of all that God was trying to say cumulatively through it. And what we, how we determine what Paul is saying and ultimately what God is trying to teach us in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 have to be seen in the light of Romans chapters 1 through 8. And all of Romans has to be taken through all of Scripture for it to be properly understood. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. But in these chapters contain some verses that have sparked debate for centuries among people, look at me, that are much smarter than me. Thank you for not saying amen to that. <laughs> people that are much smarter than me, that have, are much more intellectual than me, that more godly than me. And I in no way think that I can somehow try to unpack all of this in a 30-minute monologue, what people have de been debating for centuries. But at the centerpiece of this debate is the idea of God's sovereignty and how it works 
with human responsibility. Yeah, with me, say amen. Come on. That this is the tension brought out in these verses. How does God's sovereignty and human responsibility, how do they, how do they coexist? Can they coexist? And when I say God's sovereignty, I mean this idea that I deeply believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And that God doesn't need any human to accomplish his will. That God is sovereign in that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whom he wants. Did I use whom, whom right there, right? Okay. That, that, is, that God is sovereign and there are some people that, that lean into that idea in such a way that it shapes this concept of human responsibility almost to the level that God is supremely sovereign, therefore humanity is not at all responsible. And this is a tension that I don't know that we can solve but we have to, as followers of Christ and believers in his word, figure out how to sit in and try to understand. Because we can very quickly create an idea of sovereignty that dissolves all human responsibility. Or we can create an idea of human responsibility that somehow dilutes God's sovereignty. And I would submit to you both are dangerous and unbiblical. Y'all staying with me? Because in these verses, there are a couple verses especially that certain sects of Christianity have latched onto to create ideologies, doctrines that for years have split the church, have divided the body of Christ. And I can say this for certain, God does not want that. That was weird. God does not want that. That more than anything, the devil wants a divided church because he knows a unified church is a dangerous thing in this world. Come on, somebody. And we, we've got, but we've got to lean into things. And I would just, and I will also submit that I believe some of this argument is about terminology and semantics. And there's more agreement than, the, than we realize even among people that think they're in different camps. But this idea of God's sovereignty and the tension with human responsibility of, okay, if God is sovereign, then what does God author and what does God allow? Like, what does God make happen because he's God and he can? And what does God allow to happen because he's God and he can? And I think if we're not careful, we can move into an idea of what God authors almost to the point where if that's our view of sovereignty, then somehow it makes God the author of evil and sin, and we know that not to be the case. Come on. And so how do we manage this tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how they coexist and they work together and how God in his sovereignty creates the opportunity for human responsibility out of his desire for authentic relationship with his people and what does this really look like and how does it work? And I believe it is dangerous to rob God of his sovereignty but it is unbiblical to absolve ourselves of any responsibility. 
And there are some that have taken this idea of sovereignty to believe that in God's sovereignty that God has already predetermined who's chosen and who's left out, who gets picked for eternal heaven and who is predestined to spend in eternal hell. And I can't look at the totality of Scripture and believe that there are some that are intentionally chosen by God for heaven and some that are predetermined for hell because Scripture will not allow me to take that position. Y'all still with me? Some of y'all disagree with me. It was predestined anyway, so you can't get mad. But I look at the totality of Scripture, and, and, and I, too, have a hard time understanding all of how this stuff works out and plays out in, in the world. And, and, and you read this thing, these things, and, and it's confusing. And it's not because our God is, is a God of confusion, but he is a God of complexity. And we have human finite minds that are trying to understand this God that is so much bigger than our intellect that we can't even fathom it. But to act as if there is not some measure of human responsibility in the things that unfold in this world and in our eternal position is to ignore even the very concept of repentance. Just sit in that for a moment. Because repentance is an idea that we all commonly agree is woven in the fabric of Scripture, is it not? And I read verses like, and these are not going to be on the screen, but if you want to write them down, I read verses like Joshua 24, 15. So choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose. And I see verses like 2 Peter chapter 2, that all should repent. I think about John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I think 1 Timothy 2, 4, who the God who desires all people to be saved. Titus 2, 11, that grace appeared bringing salvation to all people. That Titus 2, 11, grace appeared bringing salvation again to all people. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, our Savior desires all people to save. That I deeply believe that God in his sovereignty knows who will receive and who will reject that he knows every decision that you've ever made and that you will ever make, but the role in which he plays in you making that is one that has been debated throughout time. But I don't think that foreknowledge equals predetermined, that he is all-knowing, knows all things, sees all things, but I also believe he is a God who sent one to die for all, and that we have the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is and receive his grace and find his mercy. And so it's through that deep conviction and through the lens of all of Scripture and all of Romans 1 through 8 as we step into Romans 9 that we try to unpack its meaning. Are y'all still with me? I don't know if I can preach this three times. We're going to queue up a video for the next two gatherings. 
Because I think at the end of the day, what we have done is, is we've latched on to some of these verses woven in these scriptures and we've missed the heart of a man who penned them in brokenness for his people. Because he opens Romans chapter nine like this. Go with me, Romans chapter nine, verse one. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself, I myself, were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. And it's through that lens that we lean into what he's gonna say over the next few chapters that Paul writes that, that he is so brokenhearted for his people who should have been able to see Jesus and didn't. He is to the point of brokenness and frustration. He says, I would probably even give up my own salvation that they may come to Christ. That he's looking at the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, the people group that God picked to bring his Savior through the world. The people who, as Paul would continue to write in Romans 9, who had the promises, who had the law, who had the prophets, who had all the covenants, who had every good reason that when Jesus showed up, they didn't miss it, and yet they did. And Paul is broken by that reality. And it's, it's in that posture that he pins what he's about to say over these next couple chapters. It's a man that is deeply burdened for lost people. And not just any group of people, but a people that, that had every opportunity to see Jesus. People that were exposed to the things that he was exposed to. And somehow they missed it. And everything he's writing now is, is, is through that, that lamenting of his desire to see these people come to Christ and to get, get beyond the things that are standing in the way of their ability to see Jesus for who he is. And it would be really weird for God to write about Paul's brokenness for people that he didn't pick. But... Again, as he does all throughout this book, he tries to head us off before we jump to the wrong conclusions. So, so wait a minute, before you start thinking that God picked the wrong people, that these people who had the promises, who had the covenants, who had the prophets, before you think, well, did God get it wrong? Did, did God pick the wrong people group? If, if they should have got it and didn't, did God pick the wrong people? Here's something that you need to know, God is sovereign and he never makes the wrong decision. God never makes the wrong choice. And, that's, and it's through that idea that you need to see that God, before you start thinking that somehow God got it wrong, God doesn't get it wrong. Come on, somebody. God doesn't get it wrong, anything. There is nothing that God has ever gotten wrong. And so he, he, as you move into verse six, he's trying to head this idea off at the pass. Because see, he writes, now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who were considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah 
not Hagar. Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father, Isaac. For through her sons, so for though her sons had not yet been born, and this is the verse where people get a little bit stuck. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, and as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now you can see, we just went down into the weeds. Because you read those verses, and, and, and then it starts to, you even, and, and it's funny that in verse 11, we latch on to the word election, but to me, the most important words in that verse are so that God's purposes might stand. That everything that God is doing, look at me, church, God is solely concerned about two things, his will and his glory. Let me just shatter your little idea of you. Everything in God's word is about accomplishing his will and for his glory. God is not concerned first and foremost about your health or your bank account or your accomplishments, that everything that our God is doing, it is ultimately for your good, but it is about his will and his glory. If you're with me, say amen. And so when God picks, God does, God does not choose based on effort or merit he chooses according to his will and what will bring him the most glory. And so when he says, he chose to work through, see, not all Israel are Israel. And this is a concept he introduced in Romans chapter three, do you remember? When he says, you're not an Israelite just because you're circumcised. You're not an Israelite just because you went through the traditions. Because this is about, you're not in the promise just because of the physical things that you do or the family heritage you have. Because this is a heart issue that's received by faith. Come on, y'all with me? And he's saying, remember, Y'all know that Isaac wasn't the only son of Abraham because Abraham got impatient, tried to circumvent this whole deal, and had a child with his maidservant, but God didn't make a promise through Abraham and his maidservant. He made it through Abraham and Sarah, and God has to keep his word because he's God and he can't do anything else. Rebecca and Isaac, because look at, latter part of verse 12 and verse 13 are two different Old Testament verses that were written 1,500 years apart to say that this is how God operated all throughout time. God does not choose to use people because they're worthy. You know why? Because he wouldn't have anybody to choose from. So he didn't choose Jacob because he was worthy and Esau because he was unworthy. Because neither were worthy. Read about Jacob. He was a trifling little joker. He had a hold of Esau's foot saying, me first, bro. And Esau sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Must have been some good soup. And when he says, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau, that is a Hebrew idiom that we have seen all throughout Scripture. He doesn't literally mean that God hated one and loved the other. You've heard Jesus use this idiom himself. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Does God literally mean there that hate your mom and dad? Well, that would be very contrary to one of the Ten Commandments that talks about honoring our father and mother. And God's not going to contradict himself. He's talking about a measure of love, a measure of belief, a measure of favor between the two. Not because Esau didn't deserve it and Jacob did, but because God's trying to accomplish his will, his way, and achieve glory for himself. Y'all with me? But before you start thinking, well, that's not fair. Why does Jacob get to do this and Esau get to do this? Again, look at me. You don't want to start throwing around the word fair in God. Because fair is none of us get anything and all of us go to hell. That's fair. God is not fair. He is just and he is merciful. And who he gives justice to and who he gives mercy to is up to him and he never gets it wrong. So verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then again, we got to sort of get into these words. And can I just say that in this context, I think Paul is much more speaking to how God is accomplishing his earthly mission, not how he goes about putting us in eternal salvation. Did that make sense? So then it does not depend, verse 16, so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth, because ultimately I'm about my glory. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. And it's verses 16 and 18 that, so then, he does, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Like, we know that. Paul spent the last eight chapters trying to get us to understand that, like, you are not saved because of what you do. It is not about your effort because you would never be good enough to be made righteous with God. It is about his mercy and his grace that puts you in that position. But then we see verses like, okay, he shows mercy on who he shows mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden, and it starts to get a little more complex and confusing is what is he really trying to say? Number one, remember when he's quoting here from Exodus. In our forward series, we walked through some of this. When he told Moses, look, I will show mercy who I want to show mercy on, because you know what? Who I show mercy on, it's not that he shows mercy on, on somebody. It's why does he show mercy on anybody? <laughs> And when he says that about the nation of Israel, it's after Moses had just come down from Mount Sinai and the nation of Israel has just gone crazy, building idols and doing all kinds of crazy things. And when he says, I will harden who I want to harden, it's, it's, that's where we start to believe, well, did, what, what does God make us make these decisions? But even again, as he's referring to Pharaoh, do you remember how that story unfolded? When he hardened Pharaoh, he only allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh ultimately wanted to do anyway. Because if you read that account of this, in, in, this interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, read how many times. It doesn't say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it says Pharaoh had hardened his own heart well before God said, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. That you resist, resist, resist to the point where God says, okay, I'm not making you have that. I'm giving you what you already decided you wanted. That you've, it, I think maybe there's a reason why God get, you know, God didn't give us the Bible in English. 
The original Old Testament was written in a language called Hebrew, the New Testament in a language called Greek. And Greek is by far the hardest language I will ever try to understand. It's complex, there's no punctuation. You can move words around and it really doesn't matter their order in the sentence because it matters the verbiage of the word that determines where it lines in an English sentence and what it means. And trying to understand the different tenses that are there, that this hardening is a passive tense of what God allows to happen. And I see this understanding of this in Acts chapter 28. Remember, who's, recap, who's Paul broken for right now? The nation of Israel, his countrymen, his kinsfolk, his friends, the people he grew up with, the people he knew, the people he played on the playground with, the people he grew up going to synagogue with, the people that he, that he loved, his own family members, or, or he knows they don't get it. They haven't seen Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They think just because they're connected to Israel that they're okay and they're not. They think because of, of their accomplishments and their ancestry that they're gonna get to heaven, but accomplishments and ancestry are not how you're made right with God. And he's broken for it. And he has spent time trying to convince them of what he has now become certain of. So in Romans, I mean, excuse me, in Acts 28, he says this, he's in this engagement with these Israelites trying to convince them that Jesus is the way. And it says, disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. He said to them, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding and you will be Look, always be looking, but never perceiving, for the hearts of these people have grown callous, hard. And that hardening is not the result of something dictated by God, but something decided by them. Because look what he says. For the hearts of these people have grown callous because their ears are hard of hearing, and they, they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and then make the decision to turn. And if they would, I would heal them. But they won't. And before you start to misunderstand what I'm saying here, Paul would say, verse 19, you will say to me, therefore, well, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Again, as if, God is mean or unfair. And verse 20, on the contrary, who do you think you are? <laughs> a human being to talk back to God. Well, what is formed, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter, or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And to me, the most important two words of that are the same lump. Because the reality is, Jacob and Esau are from the same lump. Look at me. Even Moses and Pharaoh are from the same lump. Moses was messed up. Remember, he had anger issues, and he killed a man with his bare hands. Several times, he talked back to God. He even got to the point where he was 
disqualified from the promised land because of his disobedience. So before you start thinking, well, the reason why God used Moses because Moses was more worthy than Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh was this. No, they're from the same lump. But God chooses who he uses, not based on merit, but the purposes of his will and for his glory. That is what he uses. Because if he chooses those who are worthy, no one gets chosen. But the reality is... God's up to something, and this is what I've been saying, verse 23. And what if he did this? What if he did all of this? Everything he's ever done to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved, and it will be in the place where they were told you are not my people, that they will be called sons of the living God. Because see, now they're having to live in this tension that God is using another group of people that were undeserving. See, if you look back and those stories about Jacob and Esau and, all, and Isaac and even his, his older brother Ishmael, there was a cultural law that the oldest, the firstborn, not the secondborn, got all the good stuff. But God has shown that he will take those who you think least deserve it and use him most for his glory. And Israel, the firstborn, has refused to see. So the secondborn, not born of flesh and water, but of born of spirit, as Jesus would tell Nicodemus, the Gentiles who now have been grafted, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 11, they have been grafted in, and it's that group of people now that God is using for his glory and to make his name known. And ultimately, that's what this is about. Look at verse 30. So what shall we say then? See, Paul's gonna say, like, here's what I've been trying to say through all these verses that I've written so far. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, somehow they've obtained it. How? Namely, the righteousness that comes through faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but it, as if it were by works. See, they're not in, not because I don't want them in, but because they think they can get in by a way that isn't right. Y'all with me? See, they're not in. And Paul would go on to say that not all Israel is lost because Paul would say, I'm, I'm proof that Israel can be found. If I can come to Jesus, anybody can come to Jesus. If I, who was the Israelite of Israelite tribe, go into Philippians, he gives his resume of, you know, of the tribe of all these different things where he gives his heritage. But he says, all that stuff, I've figured out what my countrymen had not, that that stuff means nothing and that what means something is that I'm a sinner in need of a savior and I receive his grace and in faith trust in what Jesus is and that's how I have gained access to the Father. Moving to chapter 10. Moving to chapter 10. He says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth. Now, he, stop right there. Now he's about to say, this, this is how you get in. This is how you gain access, that look at me. My people missed it. They thought they had access to God through ancestry and accomplishments, and that's not how you get in. 
That's not how you get in. Chapter 10, verse, latter part of verse 8. It says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone, somebody say everyone. Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, but the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. Now think about Again, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And Paul will go on to say in 10, 14, how then can they call on him if they have not believed in, on him who they have not have believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But he would go on to say, the problem is not that they haven't heard. They've heard. The problem isn't that they don't, haven't been exposed to the way that you truly gain access to God. The problem is there's a brokenness in, in their culture so much so that the vast majority of my people are missing out on the promise that was foretold for generations and it breaks my heart. But God says in his sovereignty and his love in verse 21 of chapter 10, but to Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to disobedient and defiant people. That God sees that disobedience and that defiance, but his hand is still out, waiting for it to be taken by those who will see Jesus for who he is. And the same heartbreak that Paul had for his people is one that we share for our culture, and that's why we started this church. Because the very same reason why Paul's people miss Jesus is why so many people in our culture fail to see him. And when I say our culture, I'm not talking about the culture out there. I'm talking about the culture in here. That you think you have access because your grandpa was a preacher and a good man and knew the Bible and you've heard about Jesus and you believe he existed. But you don't get through, you don't get to heaven through affiliation, you get through with confession, believing who he is and receiving him. See, my fear about these verses is, is people can create these doctrines and these ideologies that either lead to spiritual arrogance or spiritual insecurity, and both are dangerous. Spiritual arrogance, where you think, well, because you show up at church every Sunday, everything's fine. Or because your parents are a Christian, everything's fine. Or because you know a few Bible verses, everything's fine. Or it can lead to this spiritual insecurity where you start to wonder, am I picked or am I not? And, all these, and, and wait a minute, what, did I, what if I did something wrong? And, and, and John would write in one of his later books, not the Gospel of John, that you can know that you are saved and have assurance of his grace and faith in your life. And in just a moment, we're going to watch somebody go through those waters who's made that decision 
And I hope that he goes through those with the assurance that his sins are covered, that Jesus did die for him and he's accepted and believed in his heart. And if there's anybody in this room or anybody watching online that's wondering, God is sitting there with his hand extended saying, I invite you to come. That I'm the one who died for all. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. If you're here today, and you've accepted that promise, you know you've been grafted into the family of God, not because of what your parents did or what anybody else did, but because you know you've confessed with your mouth and you've believed in your heart and you've received his grace and you've repented from your sins and you've accepted him as your savior and now you go through the waters of baptism. Again, that doesn't save you. That's the the declaration of that hope that you have and the new you that you are in him. If that's you and you're ready to get baptized today, go ahead and go out through those back doors. And I know that there are times that people come in this room and that wasn't a decision you made, but it's one you feel God calling you to make now. We have what you need. We've got shirts, we've got shorts, we've got towels, we've got everything you need to take that step. Or maybe you're in this room and for far too long, you've looked to the wrong thing for your salvation. And today you need to trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him your hand in his and receive his grace and accept his mercy not because you're worthy not because your accomplishments not because of anything other than God's grace and mercy that he got to the cross and rose from the grave so that you could live in relationship with him and Paul just told us how you step into that so if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and move towards him he will meet you right where you are so God I pray that right now that as we worship you, that your spirit would fall on your people in a powerful, miraculous way that allows us to step into that grace and feel the assurance of the salvation and the hope that we have in you. Because it is in your name that we have victory over sin. It is in your name that we have purpose in life. It is in your name that we get to spend eternity in glory. It is in your name and for your glory and for your will that we receive all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said together, amen. Stand and worship with us today, church. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.